2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1. Let us hear God's word. Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> Amen. Well, last time we concluded our look at chapter 6 with all the uh, important themes regarding worship and David's desire to worship Yahweh, to bring everything uh, into one place and so forth. Um, unlike Saul, of course, worship was important to David. And he sought to unite Israel. He sought to centralize worship in Jerusalem. With the ark being in one place and the tabernacle in another, with Shiloh destroyed, David is eager to make all of this happen. This is such an important event. We obviously had a whole chapter on it here, but three additional chapters speak of these things in uh, First Chronicles, and possibly five Psalms make reference to this event. We learned, among many things, <clears throat> especially at the beginning of the chapter, that we cannot manipulate God. Having good intentions is not enough. If we want to serve God and worship him, we must also obey him. We learned also that um, not everybody wants to worship, and that's what we uh, ended with last time. Uh, Michael was more concerned, it appears, with outward things. David seems to be only concerned about worshiping God, and the contrast is very stark. Michael wanted, to David, wanted David to act more like a king, and David is saying, look, there's only one king in Israel. I'm just a servant of the true king. Yahweh is carried, but not David. Yahweh is exalted and lifted up. David is one of them, marching with the rest. He led, yes, but as Yahweh's servant. And so, um, clearly a contrast between Saul and David, and clearly we see the importance of this event. Uh, most likely, now as we transition to chapter 7 though, is the event in chapter 6 happened early in David's rule in Jerusalem. Remember he started ruling there about 1003 B.C., it is likely that the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem happened somewhere between then and 1000 BC, so within the first few years, possibly even within the first few months. As we turn now to 2 Samuel 7, though, we have reason to believe that this happened near the end of David's rule, and so possibly within a few years, maybe five to seven at the most, of the end of his rule and when he died. And so if we are correct here, then maybe around 975 BC, David wants to build God a house. And so roughly 25 years later, maybe as much as 30 years later, uh, but again, likely at a very different time in David's rule. So <clears throat> with that in mind, let's look at verse one. Now it came to pass 
when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. And we'll pause here mid-sentence and <clears throat> look at these ideas. If you look back at chapter 5 a moment, chapter, or, uh, verse 11, you remember chapter 5, especially beginning in verse 6, gave us several things uh, that happened initially with David after his anointing. And in verse 11, we see that Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. Well, obviously now here in chapter 7, verse 1, he makes reference to the building of his house. And you may recall, uh, when we looked at chapter 5, I said that uh, more recent studies, archaeological finds, documents, and such that have been found, uh, suggest to us that Hiram did not start ruling in Tyre um, until about 980 B.C. And if that's correct, then obviously David's house was built after that. Um, presumably Hiram doesn't come to David right away, but for trade purposes and such, he probably didn't wait all that long. Takes some time, of course, to build a palace out of cedar, and so maybe David is now sitting in his house, roughly 975 B.C., give or take. Now, we're speculating here. We're using uh, historical documentation to guide us in this way, uh, but nevertheless, it does seem uh, that this is how we should uh, understand it. But even from the text itself, you notice how it says here at the end of verse 1 about there's rest from his enemies. And if you look down at verse 9, it says, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And so this double repetition here suggests um, that, again, we're later in David's rule, not at the beginning. He didn't defeat all of his enemies at the beginning. Um, and so, um, it, again, is pointing us later in David's reign. Now, maybe it was off a little bit from this 975, but certainly not close to the 1000 B.C. Uh, time frame. Um, now, <clears throat> as for giving rest, uh, it... Sounds like the major battles have been won. Uh, possibly it's even to say that David didn't fight any more battles. And if that's the case, then if you look at chapter 8, David's further conquests. This in chapter 8 must have happened before chapter 7, right? And then chapter 9 has uh, the story of Mephibosheth. In chapter 10, we have more fighting with the Ammonites and the Syrians. So it is likely then, because of these words in chapter 7, verse 1 and verse 9, that the events of chapters 8 through 10 happened prior to chapter 7. And if you put all this together, again, it suggests to us then, as you turn to chapter 11, notice how it begins, spring of the year, <clears throat> time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Job and his servants and so forth, <clears throat> Well, if there's now rest and David wants to build God a house, then this event must have happened before that too, right? And so chapters 11 and 12 with Bathsheba likely took place prior to chapter 7. And then even chapters 13 and following here with Absalom, uh, these several chapters, um, there's, again, good reason for us to think that this happened prior to uh, David building a house. Absalom becomes one of the enemies that David has to fight. 
even though we are left with questions, even though we can't say definitively about certain particulars, uh, clearly chapter 7 is out of order, chronologically speaking. Um, But it's put here because of the connections with chapter 6. And so in chapter 6, as we've just seen, David wants to unite Israel in worship. David wants to bring all the worship to Jerusalem. It's partly done in chapter 6. Now David wants to finish it by not just bringing the ark to a tent, but building a temple and bringing everything together, even the tabernacle that's in Gibeon and so forth. In addition to that obvious connection, uh, some of the language is connected too. The word for house is used 12 times in chapter 6 and 15 times here in chapter 7. And notice the the connections just briefly. In in chapter 6, verse 11, notice it says about the house of Obed-Edom. Because God is with Obed-Edom in the ark at his house, his house is blessed. Remember, 62 sons. Um, Also in verse 15, it says about the house of Israel coming to bring the ark. And then in verse 19, everybody returns to his house. Verse 20, David to his house. And then in verse 21, it says about uh, David saying that Yahweh chose him and not Saul's house uh, here to be king. And then in the midst of all this house language, we have the ark in a tent, verse 17. And so chapter 6 is in many ways preparing us for chapter 7. And so, verse 1 again, David's dwelling in his house, and yet the Lord does not have one, as we'll see in verse 2. And so David then is now at peace. Again, chronologically out of order here, but now he is at peace. He is greatly blessed by the Lord. And uh, if we are now correct that all these other things happened in the meantime, um, David learned a lot in the meantime, didn't he? (laughs) He did a lot in the meantime. He was successful, defeating his enemies, but he also failed miserably with Bathsheba and then even with his own family. Uh, In a sense, you could say David grew fat, as as the scriptures describe. And he did kick a little bit in his complacency, not ultimately, of course, um, but nevertheless, we see him falling into these sins. But maybe now, after all the hardships, David is now prepared to have the right focus. He had a good focus at the beginning, he got off track, and now he's coming back to do some of these things for the Lord. Maybe it now has a better perspective. Now, what's interesting is when you look at 1 Chronicles, and we've seen, of course, all these connections with with 1 Chronicles in chapter 6, there is nothing in 1 Chronicles about David's sin with Bathsheba and the situation with Absalom's revolt. It just moves directly from uh, bringing the ark to the covenant, then to David's success, defeating the enemies, and then right into preparations for building the temple. And so 1 Chronicles doesn't address a number of things uh, in in David's life in this way. So we're speculating some here. There's no question about that. But we do have enough indication to lead us in this direction that it sounds like 
David's missteps are actually behind him now as we come to this all-important prophecy here in chapter 7. David was blessed by God in spite of all of his sin. Now we do see the census, and that does seem to be right near the very end. Uh, So David is certainly not immune for any more sins. But uh, it seems like now David is nearing the end of his life, and he wants to do this for God. Okay. So just setting some of our chronology here as we approach this uh, all-important section. So let's now bring in verse 2 and finish the sentence. uh, That the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Now obviously David hears uh, his desire is uh, quite legitimate, uh, very pious and so forth. Uh, Let me bring in a couple things also from verse 1. In verse 1, when it says, The Lord had given him rest, uh, the the name for Lord, Yahweh, is placed in the emphatic position, which, as I've said on other occasions, emphasizes the point. And so it is Yahweh that gave rest to David. And so now David wants to bless Yahweh in response. Also in verse 1, he gave, God gave rest all around, the new King James says. Hey, the word emphasizes on every side, totally surrounding David. On every side, he now is at rest, he is at peace. And so now, it is a good time to build this house for the Lord. Obviously, we see here in verse 2, uh, about a reference to David's house made out of cedar. Uh, this would be the cedar coming from Hiram. And uh, basically, this is a palace. Prior to this, David probably had a, an actual structure, not a tent. Though maybe in Hebron, he had a tent, certainly as he was wandering in the wilderness. And uh, during Saul's day, he would have been in various things. But, but this now is a palace. And as I've talked about before, there's no indication that Saul ever had a palace, certainly not one like this. And so again, God is blessing David. In spite of his sin, God is blessing David. At minimum, he has eight wives, 15 sons, and a daughter. Um, We've talked about how that is sinful, and yet it is also an indication of God's blessing. It's kind of a dual focus in certain ways. Um, And so David here, in his older age, is blessed. He is wiser. And notice here at the end, he's not concerned about maintaining his youth. He's not concerned about consolidating his power or his wealth. He is not concerned to do what other worldly kings do, but he's concerned about honoring his Lord here before he dies. He wants God simply to have a nicer house, not just a tent made of goat's hair, in fact, we read of, of that this morning, uh, the different curtains all put together and such, and the different skins that went over the curtains and so on. And as wonderful as that was, David says that Yahweh needs something even better. The point is simply this, God established David, and so David now wants to establish Yahweh here in this way. Now let me also bring in some of the historical context uh, to flesh out the meaning a little bit. 
It was very common in the ancient world in David's day for the kings to build temples and palaces for their gods. Um, So what David is doing here is not unique, similar to what we've seen on other things. Circumcision was practiced by other cultures. The covenants were done by other cultures. Baptism was done by other cultures and and temples and, and even some specific things in the temples are very similar, like the Ark of the Covenant is very similar to what we see in other cultures in terms of how it was made. And so for David to do this is right, just what you would see as you would look at the nations around him. So in Egypt and Moab and so forth, right? But as we will see, there are some very important differences because these other things are corruption of the true. They're elements of true, but they're also corruption of what is true. And so, for example, one of the reasons it seems like David is wanting to build God a house is because in the other cultures, right, they had multiple gods, and so they would have multiple houses for these multiple gods, but only the really important ones got a house. The rest were in tents. And so it seems like Part of what's motivating David is he wants Yahweh to be in a house, not just a tent, because Yahweh being in a tent to the other nations, the surrounding world, it looks like Yahweh's inferior by being in a tent. And so David's wanting to make him look better, if you will. Furthermore, <clears throat> we see in these other cultures, we've seen some of the, uh, the documents that have been discovered and such sp- say some very similar things to what we see here in this section. And one of them is that typically once the king had peace, rest from his enemies, then he would build a house for the god, a temple. And so as the god helped him to provide uh, rest for the nation, so now the king is going to provide rest for the god. Well, there's some similarity here in what David is doing in this way. Furthermore, when the kings would do this, they would always go to the gods through the prophets in some way or another, and they would seek the gods uh, before they actually built the temple. Right? David is doing something similar here in this way. So there are connections, similarities to the pagan ways of worship. But of course, right, all of those ways are corruptions of the truth. They're elements of truth but they are corruptions. And so the pagans then, in their corruption, thought that their temple would give rest to their God. Well, God doesn't need rest. Even in Genesis 2, on day 7, God rested from his labors, but not because he was tired. The word for rest, Sabbath, really has the idea of cessation of labor, cessation of work. This is why we don't just sleep all day on Sundays. That's not the point. The point isn't just simply to rest in that sense, though it's certainly part of it. But we are ceasing from our work so that we can gather together and worship God. Okay? So certainly rest because we're humans, we're sinners, we need that. Yes, absolutely. But God doesn't. And so the Sabbath was established for our benefit, not for God's. But in the pagan way of thinking... Right? Whatever they did in the temple would somehow benefit the God, okay? whether bringing food for the gods, as we've talked about before, or in this case, to provide rest. 
And so even though David is similar to the pagans in some of what he's doing, there's this very big difference between true worship and false. Okay? And so we rest on the Lord's day, and we then come to God's house to worship. Okay? <clears throat> and so as we read through this, and as Nathan initially is going to say, yep, go ahead, David. And then God comes to Nathan and says, oh, wait a second here. We're going to do something different. I have to think that one of the main reasons why God says, no, let's do it differently, is in part to say, I am different from those pagan gods. My king is going to do differently than the pagan kings. Okay? I don't need rest. And so we're going to do it this different way. David's son is going to build me the house, not David himself. And so uh, I think this is part of the reason why there's a delay, is just to highlight how different Yahweh is. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Well, um, as we think then here just for a moment about ourselves today, I made some connections with the Sabbath, but think also of this. How important is worship to us? But with this new thought, we're not just saying chapter 6 again. Okay? Now here as we transition to chapter 7, are we willing, if you will, to give God the best? Or we just give him the leftovers? Are we treating our God like the unbelievers treat their gods around them? David here is wanting God to have the best. He wants uh, Yahweh to be seen as not an inferior God, but the greatest God. Is that what we are doing in our worship when we gather together? Even the structure here, this house. Okay. Some important questions for us to chew on. Some of it is motivation. Some of it is how we then implement it. All right, so just... Uh, a few thoughts uh, in that way. Well, let's look then at verse 3. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. All right. Well, uh, first of all, this is the first time Nathan is mentioned here in the Bible. You see in verse 2 and now here in verse 3. Prior to this, we hear nothing of Nathan. But we'll hear more of him. This chapter, chapter 12, Nathan is the one who confronts David with Bathsheba. In 1 Kings chapter 1 with Adonijah, when he tries to seize the throne away from Solomon, hey, Nathan is very much a part of that account too. Like Gad, the prophet that was with David before, here now is Nathan. Is he new to the scene? Is he now just mentioned? We don't know for sure. <clears throat> But clearly, he is a prophet for David. Now, as I've said um, since we started 1 Samuel, uh, most likely Samuel wrote a good portion of 1 Samuel, but certainly not all of it. So who wrote the rest of it? Who wrote 2 Samuel? Well, I would agree with those who say probably Gad wrote a portion of it. Nathan wrote a portion of it. It would make sense that Nathan wrote chapter 7 at least. And then chapters 11 and 12, and so forth. Um, we don't know for sure, but Nathan obviously is significant here. 
Remember also this theme that we saw back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Once God established a king, the prophet gained a new um, uh, task, if you will, a added uh, responsibility to what he was already doing, and that is to keep the king in check. We see that especially with Samuel in regard to Saul, and now we see it here with Gad and Nathan. We'll see that especially in chapter 12. But even here, we see how significant the prophet is in relation to the king. And if our chronology is right, Nathan's already done his rebuking, and now here we see him respond in this way. So as we um, talked about there in 1 Samuel chapters 8 to 12, remember we made connections to Psalm 2. Remember uh, I was preaching on Psalm 2 the same time I was preaching on Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 8, and the connections there are, are um, uh, very deliberate, I think. Um, and so as we said, look, the church is not over the magistrate, right? the prophet is not over the king, nor is the king over the prophet or the magistrate over the church. These are, if you will, co-equal offices, responsibilities that God has given in a society. Plus, we have the family, and that's another dimension. And we can even talk about our individual responsibility. There are these four levels of government, and all are accountable before God. And so the, the prophet here is coming alongside of the king. He's not telling the king, you need to do X, Y, Z. But he is saying to the king, this is the job that God has given to you. Okay? And both of them are serving God. The prophet is to remind the ruler of his responsibilities. And so as we uh, again talked about in these uh, earlier passages, we looked at Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Hey, the king, Caesar, has been given certain things by God. And it's a whole lot less than Caesar wants. And this is why he's throwing off the bands there and the ropes and the, and the restraints there in Psalm 2. He wants to do far more than God gave him as a responsibility. He doesn't want to serve God. He wants to serve the dragon. And so the connections then with Revelation 13 are also significant. Unfortunately, not only does the magistrate throw off the restraints that God has placed upon him, so too many prophets became yes-men to the king. And we see that repeatedly in kings and the prophets where Right? The king would want something and all the prophets would come in and they would say, yeah, king, whatever you want and so forth. And then on occasion, the king would say, yeah, but I want to hear this prophet because I know he's not just going to tell me what I want to hear. Okay. <clears throat> Nathan's not being a yes man here. Okay. But unfortunately, many prophets do with the king. The prophet today is the church. The king today has many manifestations. But unfortunately, the church today has become a yes man for those in positions of power in our culture today. We have become the false prophet as the church, by and large. We're just telling the magistrate, yep, you do whatever you want. Okay? 
take everybody's liberties away and force them to get a shot or stay at home or whatever it is. Okay? The church did nothing but to just say, yep, that's the right thing. We need to love our neighbor. That's just one example. Okay? So again, as we come to this situation of Nathan with the king, let's be reminded of these biblical principles that the prophet, his job in part is to tell the king, remind the king of his responsibilities as a servant of God. And Nathan is one of those true prophets. Again, we're putting things in a different order. He already has rebuked David, most likely, temporally speaking, chronologically. Uh, but here he says yes. And as I just said, Nathan is not a yes man, but he very readily says, yeah, David, go do that. That, that sounds great. And it's because David's idea is reasonable. It's reasonable from a cultural perspective, but it's reasonable also because of um, biblical ideas, not just because that's what the Moabites do or something like that. Or to put it another way, <clears throat> there's really no obvious reason to say no. David's idea here makes sense. But as we'll see beginning in verse 4, God has a better idea. He's not rebuking David. He's not saying, David, no, this is a bad idea. But he's saying, we're going to do it differently. I'm going to do it here by way of covenant. All right, now Nathan here then says at the end, the Lord is with you. Now, again, we don't know when Nathan started ministering with David. But if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16 here just a moment, when Samuel anointed David... You remember these words, 1 Samuel 16, <clears throat> verse 13. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now, this doesn't mean David was sinless. Okay? Obviously not. Bathsheba, the census. Uh, remember what he almost did with Nabal. Remember how he fled to Philistia. You know, there, we've seen some of David's sins. Obviously, he has multiple wives. But, in spite of his sin, God is with him every step along the way. This is why David was successful. This is why he defeated Goliath. This is why he survived Saul's maniacal endeavors against him. This is why David could beat the Philistines, and so on and so on. Okay. And so here then, um, uh, Nathan is more or less reminding David of how God has been with him all along. All right. <clears throat> now, um, let's step back a little bit. I've, I've been doing that all along, but let, let's do it a little bit more here from this section. Uh, let's turn here a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 12. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Um, <clears throat> you recall that this chapter is uh, basically God telling Moses and Israel to uh, set up a place of worship once they get into the promised land. Okay? And so notice there, uh, verse 2, utter destroy all that's there, right? Break down all their, their altars. Verse 3, do not worship Yahweh that way. 
But verse 5, seek the place where the Lord your God chooses. And, of course, we know that's going to be Shiloh. Um, Offer uh, all their offerings there, verse 6. Eat before the Lord there, verse 7. And then verse 8, you shall not do at all, sorry, you shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you. And it goes on, right? The different offerings and so forth. Now, as we read verses 8 to 11, doesn't that sound very similar to what's happening now with David? Initially, obviously, Joshua is the one who does this. He is the one that God uses to bring rest to the land, the inheritance there, verse 9. And in the book of Joshua, we see that very clearly. We see then the place of Yahweh's worship established in Shiloh, and they do bring about uh, the worship there. And so God provided rest all around, as Joshua says, and right, they, they obey these words. Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, as we know, it didn't stay that way. Over the next roughly 400 years, we see things falling apart. And, of course, we went through the book of Judges and then for Samuel, and we saw all the sin, how things were falling apart in Israel and how they were running after other gods, and God would bring these judges and restore them and punish them and all this, right? Well, God then raises up David. And you see how, in a sense, things are starting over again when it comes to worship. Remember, the ark is in one place. The tabernacle is in another place. Shiloh is destroyed. The text, I'm not sure, is explicit. But there is enough similar language to call us back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. And you have to wonder if Nathan, or whoever wrote chapter 7, said things to specifically remind us of Deuteronomy 12. Some of the language is identical, especially that language here in Deuteronomy and uh, verse 10. Right? He gives you rest from all your enemies round about. That's, that's the same language as we see with David. It's just translated a little differently in in the English. So here is David then reestablishing worship. Can you say going back to the way it was when they first came into the promised land, David is the new Joshua, if you will. David is the one who is conquering all the enemies. David is the one, ultimately God, of course, who provides rest from all the enemies. And so now he wants to establish worship, not just by bringing the ark, but now by building God a house, establishing the place in Jerusalem, which he started to do, but now in a greater way. David wants more, a fuller fulfillment, if you will. So again, you see, it makes sense that Nathan would say, yeah, David, go do this. This is a good idea. All right, so that's uh, a first um, bigger thought here. The second bigger thought is, is this. Um, 
If you come back to chapter 7, if you haven't yet here in 2 Samuel, um, <clears throat> notice the structure of the chapter. We have looked now at verses 1 to 3, and it basically gives us the setting, the foundation. Here's the background for everything that's coming. And so we've spent a little time on that tonight. Verses 4 to 17 are the prophecy, the words of God that came to Nathan and then to David. The focus on the covenant is very explicit. We'll bring that out <coughs> as we uh, go through these verses. But verses 4 to 17 are uh, obviously very significant. And then in verses 18 to 29, we have David's response, uh, his prayer, a prayer of gratitude and thanksgiving, um, as well as a prayer that God would then fulfill his promises like he has just made. And so here is some of our structure. Now, because of verses 4 to 17 being what they are, it is common to hear people say something along the lines that this section, along with the parallel in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, that these verses are some of the most significant in all the Old Testament. Now, as I've said before, it's kind of hard to say that, you know, Genesis 1 to 3 are pretty important and Exodus 20 and so forth, but you can at least understand why they say what they say. This is so significant. This covenant that God makes with David in many ways governs everything else in the rest of the Bible. Even when you get to Revelation 22, there are references to the Davidic covenant. And so from here on out, there is going to be a reference to the Davidic covenant in one way or another, in nearly every section of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, <clears throat> right? We, we talked recently here about the life, uh, excuse me, the birth and life and death and resurrection of Christ. Remember, we looked at Matthew 1. Well, it makes reference to David, okay? <clears throat> I didn't do this, but we could have turned to Luke 1, and there would be a reference to the Davidic covenant. Okay. It's, it's everywhere. It's so significant. Furthermore, the Davidic covenant takes us backwards. There are connections to the Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> there are connections with the Mosaic covenant. We just looked at Deuteronomy 12. Okay. And so it's clearly very significant. Let's turn a moment to 1 Chronicles, then, and chapter 17. <coughs> now, we had just looked at the connections of 1 Chronicles with 2 Samuel 6, and those three chapters greatly expand on some of what we see there in 2 Samuel 6. Now, here in 1 Chronicles 17, it is very, very much like what we see in 2 Samuel 7. There is very little difference, and I'll call our attention to some of those things as we go through it. However, if you move forward, chapters 18, 19, and 20 talk about David defeating all the enemies. Then you see the census, chapter 21, and then beginning in chapter 22 to the end of the book. It's all about preparations to make God a house. And how David was involved in all this. He doesn't actually build it, but he helps to prepare for it. And this we don't see in 2 Samuel. And so I will make some references to chapters 22 and following as we go through this. Um, but uh, maybe not quite the same way as we just did with 
Second uh, Samuel 6. But nevertheless, again, you see the significance. That's what I'm just trying to emphasize here. This is so important because of building God a house and because God is building David a house. All right, now one last um, uh, thing for us to cover here tonight briefly as we are uh, preparing to look at this prophecy is uh, the names of God. And uh, here's where I want to make reference to the outline. Um, I decided just to put it on here for make it easier for you to see. All right, as I said, the prophecy is verses 4 to 17, and then we have verses 1 to 3 here. And so if you put all that together, verses 1 to 17, note the names of God. As I've said multiple times over the years, pay attention to the names of God in the passage because it's going to tell you what's going on, what's the main point. Well, notice the names of God. In the prophecy, um, Yahweh is used six times, right? Lord in capital letters. Yahweh of hosts is used once in verse 8. God, or Elohim, is only used once in the context of the ark there in verse 2. And then, not surprisingly, since God's the one speaking, (laughs) the first person pronouns. If I counted correctly, there are 35 of them in verses 1 to 17. God is is speaking. Uh, God is not spoken to. There's no second person pronouns. And the third person pronouns are used in the context of the son. And so initially that's Solomon, ultimately that's Christ. Okay, there are some there. Now in David's prayer, verses 18 to 29, notice that the main name that he uses is Adonai Yahweh, and um, typically it's translated uh, something like Lord, in lowercase Lord, O-R-D, and then God in capital letters. Now at least that's certainly true in the New King James. Your translation may do it a little bit differently. But it is the name Adonai Yahweh. Notice also the name Yahweh is used twice. The name Elohim or God is used five times. And then you have combination of Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel. So these are the names that are used. And again, especially Adonai Yahweh. Note then the personal pronouns. Only once now is the first person, God speaking. And that's a quotation of what God said there in verse 27. Um, And then twice we have the third person. But then, again, if I counted correctly, 51 times David is speaking to God. You, your, 51 times in the prayer, David addresses God with the pronoun plus the specific names. And so... um, Notice in the promise, in the prophecy, it is the covenant Lord. That's the name that is emphasized here. In David's prayer, he mentions the covenant Lord, but he also acknowledges his lordship. He is maker. He is Lord and ruler by saying Elohim and Adonai there. And so David is combining God, his maker, with God, his covenant Lord, in the names that he uses. David's humility is quite evident in his prayer. 
So, again, just pay attention to the names of God. It's always telling us something. And here's a brief word in this way. So as we go through the prophecy in David's prayer, uh, remember some of these things here tonight. <clears throat> All right. Well, as I said, I thought maybe we'd get into the prophecy today, but I thought, no, let's just focus on some of these foundational things. And now we can move forward and look at some of these words, these all-important words uh, here given to David next time. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for um, your word you have given to us. We are thankful, Lord, again, for uh, David's desire to honor you, his desire to worship you, his desire to um, elevate you, to lift you up, to set you on high, even in a structure, in a building. Not just with words, but here even in this way. Lord, certainly this encourages us, this challenges us to do something similar. And we are um, um, encouraged here by David to, because you are our covenant Lord. And that you have made promises, you have kept your promises through Christ, and you have provided us a house a house like you provided for David. And as Jesus himself said, you are building mansions for us in the sky, an eternal house that you are preparing for us for eternal rest. And Lord, we are most grateful for these things. And so, Lord, we do pray, as David will pray here later in the chapter, that you would fulfill the promises you have made to your people, to us, that you would um, uh, bring about these things soon and that we would know um, the eternality of these blessings. We pray for the return of Christ in this way and that you would fulfill uh, your promises and establish your kingdom forever uh, in all of its fullness. But also with David, Lord, we uh, are just truly amazed that you would do any such thing for such wretched sinners as us. We too, like David, have fallen short. We too, like David, have uh, just missed it. And uh, we have dishonored you in different ways. But we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful for your blessings in spite of us. And so, Lord, we give you praise and we give you thanks through it all. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>